The following is a message by Dr. John Fesco from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Bow together in a brief word of prayer. Father, we are grateful that you have gathered us here out of our busy day uh, to be able to stop and consider your word, meditate upon it, and uh, learn from it. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would unstop our ears, open the eyes of our faith, that we would see uh, your faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would fill us with hope uh, in the face of no matter what it is that we encounter in this life. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you would, let's open our Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. As uh, you may or may not know, the faculty is beginning its uh, chapel series uh, this semester uh, on the book of Exodus. And I have uh, the privilege of being able to open the series. Uh, so we'll be looking this morning at Exodus chapter 1. Uh, what I'll do is I'll be reading verses, uh, reading the entirety of the chapter. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Exodus chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt when then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store uh, cities, Pithom and Ramses, uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, uh, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. I think I can say without a doubt that uh, most people do not like cliffhangers. 
When we're watching a story, when we're reading a book, we want to know what is going to happen next. If you're in my household, my wife rarely has to worry about cliffhangers because she'll read the last chapter of the book first to see what happens and see how the story ends. But I can remember one of the greatest cliffhangers in my life that I just absolutely could not stand and just hated with a passion. It was at the end of Empire Strikes Back (laughs) when Han Solo was frozen in carbonite. I was desperate to know what would happen. And what was agonizingly painful is that I had to wait a number of years for that question to be answered. Well, I think a similar mindset, though obviously not precise, uh, kind of a parallel exists here in our text. In that we read the book of Genesis, we read of all of the drama I mean, we think of Joseph descending into uh, Egypt in slavery, uh, being thrown into captivity, uh, becoming the most powerful person in Egypt, save but only one subject to the authority of the king. And then we see him reunited with his brothers. And in the closing words of the book of Genesis, Uh, has Joseph dying, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Naturally, there are a lot, if you will, of cliffhangers in Genesis. We want to know what happened. I mean, what about the promised land? What about God's promises to Abraham? What about uh, the unfolding plan of redemption? What about the promise that was made to Adam and Eve in the garden as they stood trembling before their covenant Lord in great fear of his judgment, knowing that they were guilty of sin, but yet having received the promise that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent? What of all of those things? Well, this is essentially where the book of Exodus picks up. It's not so much a separate story as much as it is, if you will, the next installment, the next chapter, if you will, in this grand uh, history of redemption. We know this, I think, from a number of things that we find in the text. First and foremost is the interesting point is that the book begins with the word and in the Hebrew text. And, if I began a speech with the word and, you might think, well, wait a minute, what else was he going to say? What else has he said? It links the existing narrative with the narrative that has gone before. But not only that, in addition to that, that the second piece of evidence that we can see that there is a narrative hole here between these two books is that verses 1 through 6 in the list of Jacob's sons is repeated practically word for word from Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. So here, we have an explicit connection with the narrative that has gone before, and it is now being linked here to what follows. In other words, uh, the text is specifically telling us, here is the continuation of the story. Here is, if you will, the resolution to some of these unanswered questions, these cliffhangers in the earlier portions that you have read in the book of Genesis. So then the question becomes then is, well, how are these cliffhangers answered? How are are these tensions resolved? 
because the text presents something of an ominous descent, if you will, into darkness to a certain extent. We read in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. All of a sudden, darkness descends upon the narrative. The joy, the supremacy, uh, the peace, the place of prominence that Joseph and his descendants once held in Egypt is no more because the king has completely forgotten about Joseph and his family. And we might naturally be led, and perhaps even for these Israelites who were uh, close to this, this narrative event in terms of their own lifespan, as they would be told this story, as they were on the Exodus themselves, they too might have wondered, has God forgotten about us? What about his promise to Abraham? What about his promise to Adam and Eve? What about the prophecies that Jacob gave to his sons, the leaders of Israel, heads of the 12 tribes? What about all of those things? Because right now, things look quite dim. Pharaoh has forgotten about his promises to maintain Joseph's people in the midst of the land. And not only that, but they are being persecuted. They are being forced to labor very, under very difficult circumstances. They are, in a sense, they are essentially slaves. But even before we get to one of the chief protagonists, if not the chief protagonist of the Bible, but certainly of the book of Exodus, with Yahweh revealing himself in his glory there uh, in the burning bush to Moses, where he declares uh, his grand name, I am... There are hints in the narrative that God has not at all forgotten his promises. You'll notice there in verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. There are some words in the Bible that when you read them, the red light should start going off if you, if, if you didn't notice it before. And to hear language of being fruitful and multiplying are two of those words, especially when you hear them together. It should certainly invoke to us the opening chapter of Genesis where God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Now we know that that didn't work out too well and that Adam and Eve sinned. But what was once a command in the first chapter of Genesis, has instead become a promise. <clears throat> Remember that God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So here, the narrative is whispering. But it's whispering hope in the midst of darkness. It's whispering the faithfulness of God to his covenant, saying that even though Pharaoh has forgotten Joseph, even though the Egyptians have forgotten who you are, I have not forgotten my promises. I have not forgotten my word 
to multiply the descendants of Abraham and to make them as numerous as the stars of the sky, to make them as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Even in the midst of this difficult time, even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of the persecution, they are being fruitful. They are multiplying. And it is not because of their faithfulness, as the narrative in the latter half of the book of Exodus makes abundantly clear, the whole golden calf thing, but it's because of God's faithfulness. It's because of God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. And you even see it in other small ways. They say that some of the genius of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings are some of the common themes that he picks up, themes that you find prominently in the scriptures. Tolkien's Roman Catholicism notwithstanding. We'll set that aside for the time being. But it's the idea that you have seemingly small and insignificant things proving to be great and mighty things, such as the little seemingly insignificant ring and the power that it wields and its influence all over anyone who wears it. Or in this particular case, you see this in Tolkien's narrative, and I have to say that I've read two of the three books, and I know it's guilty of great heresy. I haven't finished them. I'd much rather prefer the movies. I know that's wrong of me, but whatever. You can rebuke me later. (laughs) But it's the idea that who is it that goes and delivers the ring to the fires of Mordor? It's the insignificant hobbit. Not the mighty warriors, not the mighty kings, not the elves and all the other weird-looking things there, but it's these insignificant, impish-looking creatures that prove to be filled with the greatest amount of courage, uh, the greatest amount of bravery that end up dealing the death blow to this almighty, powerful ring. And that, I think, is something that you see here. That theme, if you will, is in the narrative. Because here is the mighty King Pharaoh, who has at his command and his control the armies of Egypt and the might, if you will, of the known world at that point. Egypt was a dominant world power, and yet who is it that stands up to his decree? Midwives. Say, no, we fear the Lord more than this mighty king. So yet again, the narrative is hinting, in spite of man's efforts to quash the promises of God, even in the most seemingly insignificant of people, the Lord is maintaining his promises. He is being faithful to what he says as he has the midwives, through their imperfect expressions of faith, He is maintaining his people. He is preserving them. And even as the more Pharaoh tries to uh, quash the people and to exterminate them, they increase and they multiply all the more. The text here is telling us these two chief protagonists, Pharaoh in all of his effort to kill the people of God, to 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 nullify the promises of God, God is saying no. And the text insists very quietly 
and whispers the hope, God is faithful. Yahweh will keep his promises. That, I think, is the chief theme, or at least one of the chief themes in the book of Exodus. And even when it is the Pharaoh who tries to remove God's faithful promises, or the covenant community, who by its faithlessness in the latter half of the book, God says, no, I will keep my promises. Beloved, I think in many ways we can say that we stand on the threshold of a similar circumstance. By no means precise, but similar. And that we are awaiting the conclusion of the greatest of all cliffhangers in the entirety of the world as we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look into a world in which the church is persecuted, where the church in many quarters has erected golden calves of all sorts. So whether it is from pressure from the outside of the church, faithlessness and infidelity within the church, we can certainly be led to think that maybe God has forgotten about his covenant promises. But this is where, beloved, we must look to Christ. Because as the scriptures tell us, and I much prefer the, uh, the King James to this, uh, to the King James reading, maybe it's just because it just rolls a little bit better off the tongue. But for all of the promises of God in Christ are yea, and in him, amen, to the glory of God by us. Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. When we think of God's promises to Abraham that the Israelites there in Egypt were looking to be fulfilled and which the text hints at their being beginning to be fulfilled with the fruitfulness and the multiplication of the Israelites indicating that God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham, we can look back upon the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as God's definitive answer to his promise to Abraham saying, yes, I will be faithful to my promise. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say unto seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. So beloved, when you think of God's promises in the face of seemingly that, that they are unfulfilled, when you see the infidelity in the church, when you see persecution on the outside, and it seems as if darkness has descended upon the church, remember In Christ, all of God's promises are yea and amen. And he will bring the fulfillment of his promises to a conclusion at the end of all things. But for the time being, even though the church may be unfaithful in many places, even though the outside world may persecute the church, remember, the church is going to be fruitful. The church is going to be multiplied not ultimately because of the faithfulness of the church, but ultimately because of the faithfulness of the one true God who has been revealed in Jesus Christ, in whom all of his promises are yea and amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your faithfulness throughout the ages. We give you thanks that you have indeed fulfilled your promises in Christ and will fulfill them yet. We pray that in the face of our own doubts, whether it might be in the face of our own personal uh, infidelity or our lack of hope, 
that you would point us to Christ and through the means of grace that you would feed us, uh, that you would strengthen our weak and wearied souls. We also pray, O Lord, for your church that suffers in other parts of the world under great uh, pressure, tension, and persecution. We pray for fidelity in the midst of those difficult times. We also pray, O Lord, that you would prick our hearts, that we would intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters who suffer around the world so that they too would know of your constant faithfulness in Christ. And that in the end, even in the face of persecution and darkness, the, 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 the glory of your faithfulness would shine forth in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Copyright 2012, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.